Before we jump into our text today, I want to give some first introductory comments, some general understanding of the book itself, uh, the author to whom the book was written, kind of give you an understanding, because it's always important when we come to the Word of God, and I, I say this almost hopefully each time, if not, I try to remind us as we come to God's Word, especially going through a complete book like we're going to do, that we want to look at the original author, the original audience the book was written to, and uh, the Scriptures themselves, for these are God's Scriptures, His Word, inspired and superintended by the Holy Spirit, given to us, and yet it is a piece of literature. God chose to use a literary device to communicate to His people by His Holy Spirit. So we want to understand it in that proper and right context. So, some general thoughts, introduction to the book itself. Of course, as you see in the very first verse itself, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, the author is Paul. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote many of the New Testament letters that we have, <clears throat> he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, one of the Macedonian area churches, while he was, as it was believed, in prison. Wrote this letter while he was actually in prison, most likely in Rome around 58 to 60 AD. Now, the church itself in Philippi had probably been established a few years earlier, while Paul was on his second missionary journey, as we look, read through the book of Acts, you may know that, uh, long around 50 or 51 <clears throat> A.D. And so several years before, he communicates with them in this letter of Philippians, the church had been established. Now, the occasion for writing this letter, as we'll see even as we go through the book, uh, the church itself was very supportive, obviously, as they came to know faith, uh, many of them through Paul himself, but they were very supportive of Paul's continued ministry and continuing to plant churches to the Gentiles and to spread the gospel throughout the region. And so the Philippian church had sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to the apostle, to Paul himself, while he was in need there in prison. They sent him Epaphroditus with gifts and with the personal encouragement that he could minister to Paul while he was there in prison. And so while he was seeking to fulfill that mission sent by the Philippian church, Epaphroditus became very ill, very ill, nearly died. In the midst of that occasion, he finally recovered, gained his strength back, and was ready to finally return to those brothers and sisters in Philippi. And that is when Paul decided he would write this letter and have his wonderful messenger, Epaphroditus, take it back with him and to encourage the Philippians there with the message that we have now before us. Now, it does say Paul and Timothy in the first verse. Paul and Timothy. Does that mean Timothy wrote half the book and Paul wrote half the book? That's a good question. Well, the answer would be no, more than likely. Paul is the author of this letter to the church in Philippi. He mentions Timothy, though, just as he also did in five other epistle letters. If you look in the New Testament, you'll see him say, with five other epistles, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Two of those letters, which were likely written at the same time while he was in prison. Philemon and Colossians, two other letters that he wrote. So why would he, though, mention Timothy in not just this, but even other letters? Well, likely. Timothy here in this letter to Philippians, to the church in Philippi, was certainly in full agreement 
with these thoughts and these attitudes that Paul was sharing and the words that God had given him. Full agreement, full agreement with what was being said. And Timothy himself had a great love as a pastor in training under Paul for this church that had been established and was a young group of converts growing and, and trusting God for their uh, faith. Timothy had a love for the people in Philippi, for the brothers and sisters there. He helped Paul share the gospel even in establishing the church. And he had visited them, we're sure, probably many times himself, pastorally helping, discipling, nurturing, teaching, encouraging, bringing them a greater and deeper understanding of their own uh, faith in Christ. Also, Timothy was likely in the vicinity at this time, as far as we could tell, when Paul was imprisoned, and he might have even been present assisting Paul in writing this particular letter, maybe even as Paul's secretary, as often we know was the case. Sometimes Paul needed assistance in writing his letters. And so the audience is the church in Philippi. We see here, of course, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. First, he says, of course, to the church in Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman colony, a very uh, up-and-coming place. It was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And Philippi had mostly Gentile population, but a few Jewish residents as well, but mostly Gentiles. And so this Roman colony is where this church, this young church, was established. As Paul says to them, all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus. Some translations say to all the saints in Philippi. Well, what does that mean? It means God's holy people, meaning set apart, holy, set apart for special purposes that God had for them in their life. To the body of Christ, even here at Christ Community. We are God's holy people. We are the saints in Christ Jesus, just as those in Philippi were. You are God's holy people. Whether you view yourself like that or not, you are just as set apart for God's holy purposes as they were 2,000 years ago. And so we should take that to heart, that this letter is also written to us, and we are God's saints To all the saints, to all of God's people, holy people set apart in Kennesaw, in Ackworth, in Cobb County, in Woodstock, wherever we live, we are God's people set apart for his special purposes, just as they were. He says, and along with together the overseers and deacons. I thought that was kind of interesting. Why mention the overseers and deacons, the elders and deacons specifically? Why not just say to all of God's holy people? In the church in Philippi. Why does he mention them along? Of course, they're part of God's set-apart people, but he kind of designates them specifically. No other letter does Paul do this in the introductory salutation, but he does so here. <clears throat> and there's no real clear answer, as far as I could discern or study, why specifically he mentions elders and deacons in the salutation. However, One can reason and think about why would he want to mention this particularly. It's, again, a young church, probably less than a decade old, growing, and leadership is young and developing and maturing. And so possibly because they were the ones themselves, the elders and deacons, the overseers and deacons, they were the ones that initiated the gift to Paul, you see, in the congregation. He wanted to specifically recognize them 
as a thanksgiving to them, possibly, for they initiated that these things needed to be taken to Paul through Epaphroditus, or possibly because Paul wanted to be sure that those overseers and deacons realized that there is an expectation for them to continue to lead and to take God's people forward in that church there in the midst of that Roman colony. So whatever those reasons, we just know that the overseers and deacons had a special place in Paul's heart, but also in this body, in this church as it was developing. In many ways, Christ's community is about the same age as the church in Philippi when this letter was written. And so, most appropriately, that we would spend some time here understanding what God wanted them to know and realizing as importantly what he wants us to know as we journey together in his grace. So, some themes for the book. Many themes as you read through, and I encourage you, in the next week, spend some time in Philippians. You could read through the whole book in a matter of probably less than an hour easily. Only four chapters, probably a half hour. So I encourage you, sit down this week sometime and take 30 minutes and read through the book of Philippians. Get a sense of what the book is about and what Paul is saying. So as we come to section of, of Scripture by week by week, you're understanding, you have a, a familiarity with what God is saying to us as his church. But many themes are there, including unity in the gospel, Joy and peace in the grace of God. Contentment and prayer are some themes that Paul brings to bear. And of course, the centrality of Christ. Christ being central to everything that Paul was trying to share with his brothers and sisters. There's 104 verses in this book. 104 verses. Out of 104 verses, 51 times Paul either says, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ or Jesus. 51, it's almost every other verse. Centrality of Christ is significant, and it's significant for us. Christ is the center of all that we are, just as Paul has written here. The only letter which Paul wrote, I believe, in all of his New Testament epistles, Philippians, that really doesn't have a strong overtone or maybe undertone of rebuke or exhortation. It's really a, a whole letter of just encouragement to say, keep going. Just keep going. I don't have a lot, to, I don't have a big agenda of all these things you're doing wrong. Let me just say, I'm your biggest fan. And I want to encourage you to continue to keep Christ the center. Keep growing and walking and journeying in your faith. What an encouragement Paul was to them to the brothers and sisters in Philippi. He cheers them on to continue in their spiritual progress. And that's what I want to do to you. I want to cheer you on. I'm your biggest fan. For each person here spiritually, I want to see you grow. Whatever that means in your life, I want to see you grow in faith, grow in repentance, grow in a love for the Lord, grow in any way that God calls you to grow, I want to see that happen. And it doesn't happen the same for each one of you. It happens differently for every single person. But however it is happening <clears throat> in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your job, I want to see you encouraged to keep going. Keep going with the Lord in your life. And this book hopefully will be an encouragement to do so. So, 
General introductions out of the way, let's get into the book itself. Rome, uh, Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Three thoughts coming from these 11 verses. First, partnering in the gospel has relational substance. We're looking at what it means to partner in the gospel, just as uh, Paul introduces himself uh, in a partnership as a description with the church in Philippi. And they truly were in a relationship, a very significant one. <clears throat> Partnering in the gospel, which is what we are doing together, has relational substance. It has real relationship when we partner in the gospel. You know, so much of the world's relationships that we have or that we're exposed to or that the world has apart from the church, so much of the world's relationships are very shallow. They're just very shallow. Maybe you have relationships with those uh, at work or in your neighborhood, and you really want to go deeper in that friendship, but because maybe that person does not have a relationship with the Lord, you can just go so deep. You can't, you can't explain. You try to explain, but you just can't give them enough understanding as to your heart and your relationship with the Lord. And you try, but there's just so much depth an unbeliever, spiritually, can discern, can understand. God's common grace is over everyone, and He's very graciously, He often extends insight and understanding and reason and wisdom to everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. But that's just so deep. There are very wise people in this world that are not believers, but God's wisdom is much greater, much deeper. And to be able to have that kind of a, a relationship where you can share in that depth of a relationship with the Lord, it requires believers doing so together. Most relationships in the world are formed based upon what a person can gain from the relationship. Most relationships in the world are posed, are placed upon the premise of what each participants in their relationship will receive, what they will gain from that relationship most often. Whether it's a business relationship or friendship or some other type of relationship, it's what each party can see themselves gaining from that relationship. And yet, that's so different when we consider a relationship in Christ. The church here in Philippi was a perfect example of just how partnering in the gospel has the ability to change what typically the world pursues and reasons for having a relationship. You see, <clears throat> partnering in the gospel has the ability to build a community and relationships that come together that otherwise would not. Oftentimes in the church, people come together and they join each other side by side, serving the Lord, working together in the gospel, ministering to each other and ministering to others outside the church, when otherwise they would never do so. Because there's not much in common, maybe, between one person and another. And yet, in the gospel, there is a partnership, there is a, a depth of relationship because of our relationship with the Lord himself that builds a bond that otherwise just cannot be managed. If you go and read, after you read Philippians, 
Take a, a few moments, turn over to Acts 16, and read about how the church in Philippi was established. If you haven't read Acts 16 lately, in conjunction, connection with the book of Philippians, read those two in the same sitting. Your mouth will drop open. It should, if you read through the book of uh, the chapter 16 of the book of Acts, it describes Paul and Silas's missionary journey as they came into Philippi and describes what happened there and their encounters with different people, new converts. What are those encounters like? Well, it mentions three particular people. First was Lydia, Acts 16. Lydia, who dealt, as it said, in purple cloth, dealt in the finer things of uh, the, uh, the realm of textiles and so forth. Probably a fairly well-off woman, probably well-to-do, possibly probably educated, but certainly had a business sense about her. And she was, in, was there encountering Paul and Silas as they were sharing the gospel. And as a businesswoman dealing in that particular arena, she came to know Christ through the message of grace. They shared with her what Christ had done for her, and she came to embrace that amazing love for her, one who did not deserve it. And so, an early convert. After Lydia, they then encountered this young girl who was, in a sense, a slave to other probably men, owners, kind of as Scripture described her, being owned so that she would make money for them. And how she did this? By fortune-telling. Fortune-telling this young girl. And finally, after a period of time of being harassed by this young girl, Paul turns and casts an evil spirit out of her. And upon doing so, she comes to faith. This young girl tortured, in a sense, by this possessed spirit, but also being, um, in a sense, owned as a slave to try to make money for this group there in Philippi. She comes to faith. And then you have, then, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail because of their activity and what they were doing. And they're thrown in jail, and they're in the prison. They're in, uh, in Philippi. You see what happens. There's an earthquake. And in Acts 16, it shook the foundations of the prison. And all the doors began to pop open. And surely the jailer thought, everyone's going to run away. And I'm going to be placed on the chopping block because I'm responsible as the jailer. No matter what happens, it's on my head. But Paul says, no, everyone's accounted for and everyone's still here, as he tells the jailer. And that impacted that jailer so much that he, he had to know who this God that Paul worshipped? Who, who, who was doing this that you would not just run and leave me uh, uh, responsible? So he comes to faith after seeing what kind of a heart Paul and Silas had towards him and towards where they were in prison. So you have Lydia. You have this little girl possessed. You have this jailer. Three people, if you put them all in the same room and line them up, you would say, now what do they have in common? nothing. And yet, they did. They had Christ. They had the common bond of being brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that was the core group for planting the church in Philippi. When I started Christ Community Church with my family, three daughters and wife, Charlotte, 
As we started early on, God began to gather a few people. And they did not know each other. They had nothing in common, but they began to gather. And over the course of the first few years, it was uncanny how many times God would bring someone into our congregation to visit on a Sunday morning or so forth who had an amazing pedigree, uh, someone who maybe had a seminary education or someone who had been in the ministry uh, for many years or so forth. And each time I would get so excited as the church was being established there that God would certainly is bringing these people so that they could then help this church really take off and really expand and see the gospel do its work and its power through their amazing background, education, and gifts. Nope. Almost each and every time, not every time, but more than not, those situations never produce much fruit. But it was, and it still remains to be true, those who God keeps bringing to this church who don't have an amazing spiritual pedigree, in fact, they have none at all. God reaches down, changes them from the inside out, begins to equip them, disciple them, giving them a deeper understanding of grace and of his truth, and they begin to serve him and to use their gifts and talents and begin to impact this church and this community. That has been the way God has built this particular church ever since I've been here, and he will continue to do so, whatever and however he would use those he calls. Paul and Silas, in their missionary encounters, had a very diverse group of people who would normally would not have any substance of relationship except the gospel changed them from the inside out and brought them to be uh, his servants. And so we see that in Acts 16 in this group uh, that Paul has uh, seen established in Philippi. Some other evidences of depth of relationship that being partners in the gospel brings. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, it says, servants of Christ. Now, usually when Paul starts a letter, he starts out with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He gives his title in most of the other letters. In fact, every letter in his salutation, with the exception of Thessalonians and Philemon, Paul says his title. So almost probably 70 to 80% of the time, he says his title. He didn't say that here. Wonder why he did not give his title. He didn't use the term Paul and apostle. Probably because he has such a deep already relationship, an intimate friendship and relationship of being bonded as partners in the gospel. He didn't need to say his title to them. He didn't def- did not need to defend in himself in any way. And so <clears throat> he had this relationship that was very significant, and he did not need to provide that title. In verse 5, it says, Paul says, And because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, the NIV and ESV uses the word partnership, which is in the original language, the word koinonia. That word, maybe you've heard before, maybe you haven't. That's the Greek word. Another way it's translated is fellowship. And so, this could also be translated because of your fellowship in the gospel. Um, as well. The King King James uses that word, fellowship, um, as well. It's the same word that Paul will use, we'll come to in several weeks from now, chapter 3, when he talks and encourages them to be partakers of 
the sufferings, to be in fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. And he uses the same word. In verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. You see, because of the generosity of the Philippians and the love of their uh, love they have for him, Paul is deeply connected. He's always grateful when they come to his mind. He had a deep sense of connection to them because he really knew they were partners with him in spreading the gospel. Even when he wasn't with them in person, they were deeply connected to him. Deeply connected. Verse 7 and 8, he says, it's right for me to feel this way. And he goes on, since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains, defending or confirming the gospel, you share in God's grace with me. I can test, God can testify how I long for you with all my heart, the affections of Christ. He describes to them, no matter what happens to him or what happens to them, he'll always have a deep affection for them. Always have that affection. It's kind of like an old friend from childhood you might have or from high school. This summer is my 30th high school reunion. Whew, I'm getting old. 30th high school reunion is coming up in August for me. I cannot believe it. Um, I think I went to the 10th, but that's it. I, I might be able to get over there. Um, but you know, I'm sure there are some that might show up if I go to that reunion. I could just immediately connect with from 30 years ago and almost pick up where we left off. Just we had that kinship when we were in school together, and we probably would have the same as well. You probably have a friend like that that you call on the phone once a year, twice a year, and it's like you never stop talking. It's like you just have that, that bond, that common sense, whether you're with each other in each other's presence or whether you're far apart, maybe on other sides of the world or of the United States, wherever, you might, wherever they might live, and yet you have that connection. You know, as I've served in three churches over the past 25 years, I've only served in three different churches, three different churches, Christ Community being the third, I look back and I see a, such a significant number of deep and bonded relationships that God has privileged me to be part of, to have still affections in my heart for. So many from those other two churches in Florida and over on the other side of Atlanta, I have affections for. Some of them I get with on at least an annual basis. Some I, I don't see for years or catch an email every now and then. But yet there is a deep appreciation for that opportunity to have a connection with those that God has given me in his church. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be mailing out, along with those on our Cherokee mission team here at Christ Community, our family's going to mail out about 80 letters to those outside of our church. And we sat down this week and just talked about all those that we can invite to share with us and to pray for us on our trip as a family. Our whole family is going on the trip. And to, if they'd like to give a support donation, they could. And we just rattled off 80 names. We, we just scratched the surface. We probably could have gone much further than that, but we wanted to at least invite those that we had an affection for to join us in this mission effort. You know, hopefully each one of us has those type of relationships that you could, just off the top of your head, think of 10, 15, 20, 30 people over the past years God has given you that opportunity to bond with in His grace. You know, the gospel is the only thing that places every human being on the same level. Think about it. The gospel is the only thing that can place you at the very same level and does as every other person in this world. Donald Trump, you're on the same level as him. 
You may not believe it. President Obama, you're on the same level as him. No matter who it is in this world, you are on the absolute same level as that other human being. You absolutely are. You're on the same level in the sense that everyone has a soul. God has created us. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And we all that he has given us that opportunity and he has secured that for us, have that relationship. You see, there's no pecking order. There's no pecking order. Uh, The gospel connects us based on spiritual, not temporal things. The gospel connects us on what we need, not what we bring. And the gospel also points everyone to Christ our Savior, not ourselves. And so we partner in the gospel because of a deep sense of relationship that we have. But secondly, we partner in the gospel through a prayerful connection. Look at what Paul says about his connection in prayer with the Philippians. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, verse 4, for all of you, I always pray with joy. Always pray with joy. Paul just has a deep sense of joy when he prays for his brothers and sisters in Philippi. It's their partnership, that bond that he, when he prays for them, when he lifts them up before the Lord and he considers their needs, he does so with a deep sense of love and joy for them. Paul understands that that relationship has been given to him by God himself, and he prays on their behalf because of what God has done. He continues to pray for them. In verse 9 through 11, he actually says, this is my prayer. And he actually writes the prayer out. Look at that prayer in verses 9 through 11. Paul prays for continued love. He prays for them to have a discerning spirit. He prays for them to be able to have purity of life and to have spiritual fruit that comes from the presence of Christ in their life. How many of us would want someone like Paul praying for these things in our life? Wouldn't you want someone else praying for you for these things that Paul mentions for them? Certainly we would. We would love to have these specific things to be prayed for us, that we would have a continued love for God and for his people and for those that he's bringing to himself. We would have a continued discerning spirit We would want to be prayed that we have a purity of life that glorifies the Lord, that we would have fruit spiritually that comes from Christ's very presence in our life. These are things that we would want being prayed for us, for ourselves. So why why don't we pray these things for one another? Why don't you take this list and pray for specific brothers and sisters in this church for these things? Pray these things for them, that they would be able to receive these wonderful spiritual blessings. What, how, how many of us would love to have these things prayed for us? All of us would. So how often do we pray for others? And we so often limit our prayers to health issues, possibly, those, those are, though those are important. But we limit it sometimes just to things like how the health of a person is doing or how money issues are going or how job issues are going or how marriage issues are or parenting issues. All these are very important, I understand. 
but sometimes we just pray about particular just circumstances. And we need to also be praying for these type of things that God gives us to pray for others in our body together. We pray sometimes so small for God's Spirit to work and move in power. And He wants and can do so much more. Ephesians chapter 1 Paul writes, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work with us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Partnering the gospel is a prayerful connection. But the third and final thought is this. Partnering the gospel, as Paul writes here, endures. It endures despite difficulties. Partnering the gospel does endure. It perseveres despite difficulties. Paul says, verse 5, I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel. And then he says, from the first day until now. From the first day until now. Paul has an immediate reason for being thankful for the Philippians. They sent Epaphroditus to him. And they, they continued from the beginning of the church and even to this very moment when he's thanking them, they endured in their faith, and they show their endurance by how they support and, and love and express their care for Paul. It was their unrelenting support and service to Paul and the cause that spreading the gospel meant to the Gentiles that Paul sees that they were enduring. Several years had already passed from when these new converts began the church and when Paul was writing the letter. Evidence of their early ministry as new converts surely was continuing Remember we mentioned Lydia? She opened her home. Lydia's home was probably the first worship location of the church. Probably. And she probably continued to be the headquarters for the church in Philippi. She had resources. She had means. And that was the place. That was the place that God continued to use. The jailer who quickly mended Paul and Silas's wounds there in prison. He probably continued to compassionately reach out to others. For he probably had a gift of compassion, even as a jailer. When Paul left and he went on to Thessalonica, he received gifts and support from the growing band of believers there. And when he moved on to Corinth, he continued to receive further gifts from the people in Philippi, even when they didn't have it in their resources to even give. They still gave over and beyond what their means were. They even risked the life of one of their own, Epaphroditus. They risked his life, who nearly died just to send Paul the needed supplies over and over again, brothers and sisters in Philippi amply demonstrated their faith to be genuine despite difficulties. They continued to endure. When the gospel has truly gripped us, we are able and we do endure. We endure trials, sufferings, difficulties, tribulations. Regardless of what we go through, we continue to endure for the sake of God's kingdom, both on earth and this kingdom to come. We do endure. James 1 says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed, it says, is the one who perseveres. We will receive that crown of life. Paul then moves from this immediate reason for being thankful to the ultimate reason for being thankful in verse 6. And being confident of this, he says, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Where is Paul's confidence being placed in this verse? 
is being placed in God. He who began a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. Paul didn't place his confidence in the Philippians. As much as he loved them, he did not place his full trust that they could carry their faith to the end. He knew they could not because he knew his own heart and he knew that he himself couldn't even carry his own faith. He trusted and he placed his rest on God to bring it to fulfillment. There are many doctrines in our Christian faith, but particular are the doctrines known as the doctrines of grace. If you're not familiar with the doctrines of grace, I encourage you to read and study about those doctrines. I can give you um, references to, to look those and study those. But one of the doctrines of grace is the doctrine of perseverance of the believer. The doctrine of the perseverance of a believer, the believer. It summarily says, once God saves you, he always has saved you. Once you're his, you're always his. You maybe know this doctrine well. But now the very title of the doctrine itself might draw one to consider and focus on the one persevering. Perseverance of the saints. The one persevering is the saint, the one called by God to be his. Nothing wrong with that. We do, are called and are described to persevere. And yet, that's why many call this doctrine the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And yet some, from a different perspective, would call this doctrine the doctrine of the preservation of God's people, of the believer. Hmm, there's another angle on this. The preservation is not focused on the one that is persevering, but it's focusing on the one who preserves God himself. Such a wonderful depth in, that, in this doctrine, in this truth. All throughout Scripture, many places we can find this doctrine becoming real and showing us what it truly is about for every believer. So which is it? Perseverance of the, or preservation? And the answer is yes. It's both, isn't it? It absolutely is both. You see, we persevere in the gospel because we are being preserved in the gospel. You see? You only persevere because God is preserving you. Every single day, he's holding on to you. He's keeping you. He is not letting you go. He's enriching you. He is fulfilling his mission in your life, his purposes in your life. As he has called you to be in relationship with him, in the mission of seeing the gospel go to all the nations and being a worshiper of him, he is preserving you. He will always preserve you. He will never let you go. In other words, you're going to persevere. You may not think you're going to be able to or you don't feel like it right now, but you will persevere. Why? It's not up to you. It's up to him. He preserves you to persevere. And if for some reason it's time to leave this world and to go to be with him in glory, well, that's his decision. He still has preserved you to be with him for eternity in heaven. You see, whether you're here or there, even as Paul wrote, he's preserved you for all eternity. 
So you have nothing to worry, nothing to fear. You're his for all eternity. Whatever happens to you, whatever disappointments that happen in this life, at this, in this time while you live on this world for a few years, it pales, it pales in comparison to being preserved by God for all eternity. Think about it. It's, it's just a speck of a dot on a line that goes forever. Not to minimize our sufferings and our trials, but in perspective, God has loved us so much more than what we struggle with in our circumstances that we do persevere through. He loves us so much more than that. Romans 8, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. When God calls you, he will eventually lead you to glory. It's the golden chain, and it cannot be broken. No man has ever nor ever will break what God has set in place. His decree is final, but that's our comfort. That should not be anything to give us distress. It should give you great comfort to know that this is true, and you will always know it's true forever and ever. Hendrickson, one of the commentaries I'm using on Philippians, Dr. Hendrickson says this, God accordingly, is not like men. Men conduct experiments, but God carries out a plan. Though men often do, God never does anything by halves. What's he saying? God always completes whatever he starts. He doesn't ever stop halfway through the job. Unlike us, he finishes it. Every single time, with every single soul he has ever called to be his own, he will, without a doubt, he always has and will ever for eternity bring it to pass. That's your comfort, though, because it's not on your shoulders. You can't do it, nor should you. God does it all. He brings it to pass. And so... Partnering in the gospel, God has done it. He has brought us into that relationship with him. We are in partnership with him. He uses our gifts and talents to serve and to love others as we spread the gospel to all those that he would call us to share with. For the believer, it's not a question of if. We will endure in this life. It's simply going through the journey, and discovering how we endure this wonderful grace that God has given us to share.